Well, good morning. I waited a few minutes to make sure the rain wasn't keeping slowing folks up, so we'll start just a few minutes late. But if you would open your Bibles with me in Matthew chapter 26, we'll continue our study here, Matthew, this morning. Before we begin, let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to meet together and to worship your matchless name, to to hear your gospel preached, to hear of our Lord Jesus Christ, to sing your praises, to come before you as a group and bow before your throne of grace, come before you in prayer. Father, how thankful we are that we can come accepted in our Lord Jesus Christ, that in him you accept our prayer, hear our prayers, and you accept our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving. Father, we're so thankful I pray that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted this morning in everything that we say and do, that his name would be upheld and that your people might see him and believe him, run to him, find our hope and peace and rest and comfort in him. Father, we pray for those who are in times of great, great trial and and difficulty, the, the flooding that's been in this area, the people who are bereaved and heartbroken need you especially, need your hand of healing and comfort of their hearts. Father, we pray you'd meet their need richly according to the riches of your mercy and grace and your wisdom in giving your people what's best. Father, we ask again as we we prepare to look into your word that you'd enable us to see and hear the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his blessed name we pray and give thanks. Amen. All right, I've titled our lesson this morning, Saving, Keeping Grace. Our lesson the text begins in verse 31 of Matthew 26. Then saith Jesus unto them, And ye shall all be offended because of me this night, for it's written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, the Lord is saying this to the 12, but, you know, 11 of these people he's speaking to here are believers. They've been with him for more than three years now. They've heard the Lord himself preach the gospel. They've heard the Lord himself declare himself and who he is and what he's come to do for his people. And these are men who believe the Lord. They believe him, they love him, they trust him. And the Lord tells those men, Every one of you will be offended because of me this night. The word offended means a stumbling block. He tells them, I'm going to be a stumbling block to you tonight because of what happens to me. And you know, that is a very scary thing to hear, isn't it? If you look at Romans chapter 9, Scripture speaks of Christ as being a stumbling block to unbelievers, a stumbling block that keeps them from believing on Christ, and they'll be damned because of it. Here, Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which follow not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, they tried to attain righteousness by their works of the law. They followed after the law of righteousness. They've not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, 
And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. But whosoever does not, you know, what Paul means is whoever does not believe on him will be damned. The Jews who saw the Lord Jesus simply could not believe on him because they stumbled at who he was. They stumbled at his lack of education. He didn't go to their schools and their seminaries. They, they stumbled at his upbringing. He was a, a poor man, poverty. He, he worked in a carpenter shop. He probably had calluses and blisters on his hands. That's just not their picture of who the Messiah would be. They stumbled. They, they just couldn't believe this lowly man could be God in the flesh. They, they couldn't believe it. He just was not an impressive king like uh, David or Solomon. They could not believe and trust their souls to a man who died in, in such a shameful way. They, they just couldn't do it. Look over a few more pages. 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block, and under the Greeks, foolishness. But in them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But to the, to the Jew, the, the religious person, he's a stumbling block. To the, to the Greeks who want something impressive, you know, to the mind, impressive to the intellect, Christ is a stumbling block. The simplicity of Christ is a stumbling block to the Greek. The righteousness of Christ is a stumbling block to the self-righteous Jew. Now that's the, that's the unbeliever. But the Lord tells these believers here the suffering and shame that the Lord's getting ready to endure will be a shock to them too. See, this suffering and this shame of their master was not what they expected. These men were still looking for glory. Now, they're going to see God's glory, but they're looking for it in the wrong way and in the wrong place. When they saw their master being crucified, when they saw him being so mistreated, and being crucified, that's when God's glory was being manifested through the sacrifice of, of the Lamb of God. Christ was being glorified through a shameful death on the cross. He, it, it, that didn't mean, oh, you shouldn't trust him. This is his glory. This is the reason you should trust him. He sacrificed himself for the sin of his people. He wasn't being glorified sitting on an earthly throne. He was glorified by suffering and dying a cursed death as a substitute for his people. And that was so shocking to them. It, they were also afraid, same thing's going to happen to me. Now, if you saw the Lord suffering like that, you wouldn't want that to happen to you either. I wouldn't either. They, they were afraid the same thing was going to happen to them. They weren't expecting this. So they stumbled over what they weren't expecting. I mean, the same way, you know, if, I don't know if you ever walked around the house at night, you had to get up get a drink of water, you had to go get something and the, the ottoman's been moved. And you're not expecting it. It's always over here, but it's been moved over here. You know, your wife goes and moves the, the, uh, all the furniture around, you know. Got to change it up, is what I hear. And you stumble over what you're not expecting. I'm not expecting the ottoman to be there. I stumble over it. That's what happened to the, to the disciples. They, were not, they didn't see this coming. They weren't expecting it, and they stumbled. They didn't see it coming, and even when the Lord told them it was going to happen, they were so confident they contradicted the Lord himself. Look here at verse 33. And Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet I will never be offended. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, 
yet I will not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. You know, Peter wasn't the only one who told the Lord, now these guys will desert you. I can see that. I can see why you say these fellows will desert you, but not me. No, no, I, I, I won't do that. These fellows will. I'll die with you. Now they'll all run away, but I'll die with you. So said all the disciples. They all said the same thing about themselves. And I, I don't think that they were lying when they said they were willing to die with the Lord, but they weren't willing to live with the shame. They weren't willing to, to live with, the, with shame for his namesake. And they all did exactly what the Lord said they do. They all deserted him. And you know what? It had to be that way. It had to be that way. They had to desert him. Because when the Lord suffered for the sin of his people, he had to do it alone. He had to. Peter couldn't die with him. Because if Peter had died with him, you know what you and me would say? Peter had something to do with this. Look at Peter. He had something to do. The Lord had to die alone because salvation does not come from the blood of martyrs. Salvation can only come by the blood of Christ. And had, we had to see him suffer and die alone. So we know that salvation is in him and him alone. He's getting ready to suffer unimaginable agony to put away the sin of his people. And it's going to be a scary time for the disciples. They're going to be offended. They're going to stumble. But now listen, before the Lord goes to the cross, he gives them this precious, precious promise of grace. And he gives us, those of us who read this later, a precious promise of God's grace through Christ's suffering for us. He gives us a promise of redeeming grace because his blood has been shed for sin. He gives us a promise of, of keeping grace that will preserve and keep his people. You know, we talk about the disciples saying this to the Lord. Oh, I'll never leave you. I'll never be offended by you. I'll die with you. And then they left him. Well, you know, our sin, our stumbling, our shame, really is worse than the disciples. We have more light than they did. We're, we're now looking back. We, we see what, what Christ went to do. We see what he accomplished. Our sin and our stumbling really is worse. It's sin against greater light. It's stumbling in, in greater light. But the Savior promises, no matter how weak our faith is, no matter how much his people stumble, God's grace will save us. God's grace will keep us saved. He will keep his people. This is what he's telling us. God's grace is immutable. God's grace is unchanging. Immutable is just a great big word for unchanging. God's purpose is unchanging. To redeem his people by his grace. By his grace that comes from, is purchased by the blood of Christ. And the only reason that that can happen, the only reason God's people could be saved, the only reason they can be called out by the preaching of the gospel, that they can hear the gospel and actually believe on Christ and love him whom they've never seen. Believe on him whom they've never seen with these eyes. The only way one day they'll appear in Christ's likeness and glory, there's just one reason for it. God's grace. That's the only reason. The only they, they didn't deserve any of it. Now, if you look back in Zechariah chapter 13, here's the scripture that the Lord quotes here and tells us so clearly that salvation is by God's grace from its beginning to its ending, is saving, calling, keeping, glorifying grace. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. 
In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now the fountain opened for sin was open when the body, we observed the Lord's table Sunday or Wednesday night, that blood, that fountain open for sin was, was opened when his body was broken, when he was beaten with that cat of nine tails, when he had that crown of thorns thrust down into his scalp, when he had those nails driven through his hands and through his feet, when that Roman soldier thrust his spear through the Lord's side, his body was broken and outflowed the fountain for sin, the cleansing fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood. Are you going to sing that? You're practicing it. There is a fountain filled with blood. Mm. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, didn't he? And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sin away. It's in the, the this fountain open for sin, the, the, the sin atoning, sin cleansing blood of Christ. That's the fountain open for sin. And look what the Lord says about his wounds, how this fountain was open in verse 6. And one shall say unto me, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now the Savior was wounded in the house of his friends. God Almighty made Israel his friend. He was their friend. He chose the nation Israel. He chose them as a, as a picture of spiritual Israel. He gave, they, I mean, they, now they were just a picture of spiritual Israel. But you think of the advantages that they had. They had the prophets. They had the word of God. They had the tabernacle. They had the sacrifices. They had the priesthood. They had the only way Almighty God could be worshipped. The only people worshipping God on earth at that time was that little old nation, Israel. God befriended them. But when you just think of the advantages that he gave them. And when the Savior came to earth in the flesh, he came as a Jew out of the tribe of Judah. He descended from, from David. He came into his own, John said. And his own received him not. They rejected him and they killed him. Because like I said a few minutes ago, they stumbled. They, they stumbled at who he was and they, they refused to believe on him. They refused to bow to him. And so the thing they figured that was best to do is kill him, get rid of him. We're not going to have to deal with him anymore. And the Savior tells us now, that's how I got these wounds in my hands. They nailed me to the cursed tree. I was bearing the curse of sin for my people. But now he tells us why he got those wounds. I know it was the Jews and the Romans who carried out the crucifixion. The Jews pushed the Romans to do it. The Romans were the ones that actually carried it out. But the Savior's getting ready to tell us here it was the Father who put him to death. Look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now let me give you three points that I see on saving grace in this verse. Number one is this, the means of grace. The means of grace is God's justice satisfied by the blood of Christ. Awake, O sword. That sword Zechariah is speaking of is the sword of God's justice. Now that sword has been sheathed. It's been sleeping ever since Adam fell. When Adam fell, 
God didn't take out his sword and wipe out the whole human race for one reason. He already saw his people redeemed in the blood of Christ. The lamb slain from the foundation of the, of the earth. The father had already purposed to save his people in Christ long before he ever created Adam. And long before Adam ever, ever fell. Before there was a sinner, there had to be a savior. God can't change, can he? God, God couldn't see, oh, Adam, Adam fell and messed up my plan, so I'll change. God can't change. He's immutable. He can't change. So before there was a sinner, God already had to purpose a savior. And that's exactly what he did. He purposed salvation in the blood of his son by the sacrifice of his son. If he hadn't purposed salvation in Christ, if he didn't already see God's people washed in the blood of Christ, He'd have got out that sword and wiped out the whole human race. He'd have, he'd have killed Adam and the whole human race would have been done. <laughs> when Adam fell, the sword of God's justice stayed sheathed. It stayed asleep. But now, now God purposed the sacrifice, but now the Savior saying the time has come for that sacrifice to be carried out in time. God purposed it, but it had to be carried out in time. And the Savior saying, now is the time appointed of my Father that I be sacrificed for my people. So he tells the sword of justice to awake and to extract justice from the sacrifice, from the substitute. And the sacrifice is none other than the Son of God. He's God himself. God calls the sacrifice the man that is my fellow. The man that is my fellow. This man is the God-man. He calls the, the lamb my shepherd. My shepherd. He's the shepherd that I have elected to be the savior of my people. The Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the sacrifice. And the one carrying out the sacrifice, the one executing judgment, is the father. This matter of salvation is a transaction that happens between the father and the son. It's between the father and the son. And the father awoke his sword. And he turned his sword of justice against his own son. The father is the one who plunged the sword of justice into the soul of his son. Into his soul. That's why scripture said he made his soul an offering for sin. Now even though the father loves the son. And we know from scripture the father loves the son. Doesn't he? Oh he loves his son. Yet when Christ was made sin. The father awoke his sword and turned that sword against his son. When Christ was made sin, in order, in order for a sinner to be saved, their sin has to be taken away from them. Has to be taken, all of it, away from them. Given to the substitute. Transferred to the substitute. And he's the, the one. The substitute's the one who has to put that sin away. The father was not playing games at Calvary. When Christ was made sin, he plunged his sword of justice into the heart and soul of his son. And he dealt with him without any mixture of mercy whatsoever. He didn't hold anything back. He poured out all of his holy fury upon the Son of God, upon the sacrifice, and he did put that sword up back into its sheath until justice was satisfied, until every last sin laid upon the Savior had been fully punished and put away by the blood of Christ. Now, I love to say this, when, it, when the Lord says here, this one is my fellow. The Lord Jesus is God. He is God. It's not like he's God. He's not a special manifestation of God. He's not, 
you know, a God light, a light version of God. He is God. And since he's God, you know what that means? He can't fail to do what he came to do. This sacrifice cannot fail to put away the sin of God's people. The father plunged that sword into the soul of his son to extract justice. And as horrible as the physical sufferings of our Savior are, he really never talked that much about his physical sufferings. But boy, he talked about his soul suffering, didn't he? He talked about that soul suffering because there's so much worse. He cried, not you Jews, you Jews, why'd you do this to me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All the suffering of his soul when his father forsook him because he was made sin. He cried about his soul suffering because that's where business was being done. The business of, of redemption was being done in his soul. That's where God's justice was being satisfied when God awoke his sword and plunged it into the soul of his son. Now the Savior, it's important to know, did not suffer this way for his own sin. It's not like he displeased the Father by, by his sin and, 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 and iniquity. The Lord Jesus was perfect. He was holy. He knew no sin. He did no sin. He wasn't acquainted with any sin. So why did he suffer like this? Why has he got these wounds in his hands? Why was the fountain for sin open? The Savior suffered like this for a sinful people because he took their sin into his own body this people who would be offended at him, who would stumble at his sufferings, this people who would desert him at a drop of a hat. And that includes you and me now. That's the people Christ died for. A sinful, weak people. He took their sin away from them and put it away by his sin-atoning, justice-satisfying blood. And doing that for those people shows us salvation has to be by grace. It has to be. This is the redeeming grace that satisfies God's justice to save sinners. And it's by grace, isn't it? Completely undeserved. Surely there's nobody thinks, they're so full of themselves, that they think, I deserve for Christ to suffer like this for me. No. It's undeserved. That's grace. Salvation is by grace. Which brings me to the second point. God saves his, the, the means of grace is the blood of Christ, satisfying God's justice. And the people that God saves, the people for whom Christ died, they're saved by grace. Now Christ came and he died for his sheep. He died for the sheep that the Father gave him to save. And sheep's a good word to describe them, aren't they? They're, they're a weak people, they're a sinful people, they're a dirty people, they're a disobedient people, a people who would wander away from the shepherd, just, you know... That's what the, the disciples did. I mean, they just didn't wander away from the shepherd because they just didn't really realize where they were going and not paying attention. They ran away from the Savior. They deserted him because they stumbled. They stumbled. They just weren't expecting this. Now think about this. While the Savior was performing for his people the greatest act of love and mercy and grace that has ever been known, ever will be known, right when he was doing that, that's when they deserted him. Now that's our nature. I mean, that's our nature. That's our weak faith. Christ died 
for sinners. <laughs> for sinners. And we know we're sinners in Adam, don't we? We're sinners by birth. That's the nature we received in our birth. We're sinners by choice. It's not like I sin against my will. No, we're sinners by choice. We choose to sin. We're sinners by practice. Sin is what we practice. It's our nature. Well, since that's true about us, the only hope we have of salvation is God's grace, isn't it? God's got to give us something we don't deserve. Salvation and righteousness can't be earned by a sinner. If all we can do is sin, we can't earn righteousness, can we? Then if we're made righteous, it's got to be in spite of us, in spite of our works. If God saves us, it has to be something that's undeserved. And that's what grace is. And you know, even after the Lord saves us, after the Lord gives us faith in Christ, you here who believe on him, you can honestly say this. I see him. I see him in the scriptures. I see him with the eye of faith. I believe him. I mean, I cast my soul upon him. I love him. You can honestly say you love the Lord Jesus Christ, can't you? You can honestly say that. Even after we trust all of our soul to him, and we really wouldn't think about trying to put our works on the, the scales of God's justice to help us be saved, would we? We trust Christ alone. Even then, our faith is so weak and fickle. I mean, the best we can say about our faith is, it, is it's weak. At any given moment in our lives, just think about this over the, the course of just, just the rest of today. At any moment in this day, the Savior could come up to us and look at us and say, oh, ye of little faith, why'd you fear? Why you worry? Why you doubt? Oh, ye of little faith. That's us, isn't it? Even in our best state after regeneration, we're still completely dependent on God to save us and on God to keep us saved. To save us and to keep us saved because we're sheep. And by sheep, we'd just, we'd wander away. Just maybe, maybe it wouldn't be on purpose. Maybe it's just because we're so unaware of the shepherd. We wander away. We think, well, that, that, that grass over there looks good. You know, the grass on the other side is always greener. They all go over there, you know. And we'd wander away. The only way we can be kept is by the shepherd. Thank God he's got a rod and a staff that comfort us. And you know how they comfort us? By keeping them close to him. Now, he might have to whack us on the side a little bit with his staff, you know, to, to keep us from falling off the, off the cliff or something. But isn't that a comfort when he uses that to, to, to keep you close to him? He may use that staff that's got a, as a staff, the one that's got a hook on it, to hook you around the neck and, and pull you back. And you know, that might not be the most comfortable thing in this world, but isn't it wonderful he pulling you back, <laughs> keeping you close to him? That's by his grace. Salvation is by grace from beginning to ending. And here's the third thing. The Lord calls his people and he keeps his people by grace. Now, as soon as the Lord tells his disciples, you're going to be offended because of me tonight. And you're going to be scattered. from The shepherd is going to be smitten and you're going to be scattered. You're going to desert me. As soon as he says that, this is what he promises. Look here at the end of verse 7, Zechariah 13. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now, this is not going to be the hand of God's wrath that he turns against his little ones. He didn't have that for his people. He didn't have a hand of wrath for his people. God's justice has already been satisfied by the blood of Christ. 
Our sin's already been put away by the blood of Christ, by the, by the death of our substitute. So God doesn't have a hand of wrath that he turns against his people. This hand that he promises to turn to his people is the far-reaching hand of God's grace. This is the Lord's hand that's not shortened, that it cannot save. There's not a sheep of God's who can wander so far away, his great hand can't reach them and pull them back. God promises he's going to stretch out his hand of grace and gather his people to himself. And he's going to keep them there in that great hand. Remember the Savior said, no man can pluck them out of my hand. This is the hand he's talking about. He's going to turn this hand of grace upon his people and gather them to himself and keep them. Look back in our text here, Matthew chapter 26. The Lord tells his disciples exactly how, how and when he's going to do this. In verse 32, but after I'm risen again, I'll go before you into Galilee. Now, the Lord tells you, you're going to be scattered in fear, but after I'm risen, and he's telling them, I will arise. Now, I'm going to die, but I will arise. I know I'll arise because my sacrifice is going to satisfy justice for your sin. The sin that causes me to lay in the tomb, to, to die and to lay in the tomb, is going to be gone. So I'm coming out of the tomb. I'm going to rise again, and when I do, I'll go before you into Galilee. I'm going to go before you. You're going to be scattered from me. You're all going to gather together in Galilee, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there where you're hiding to gather you back to myself in grace. See, I'm going to the cross to save you by my grace. I'm going to rise again for your justification, and I'm going to come and gather you back to me. You're going to, you're going to be offended. You're going to run away from me. You're going to desert me. But I'm going to gather you back together. Gather you to me by my grace. And I'm going to keep you forever by my grace. And if you look at Mark chapter 16, I love reading this verse. Here, here is just the, the fulfillment of what the Lord said he'd do. And I love the, the way that he does it and the way that he speaks when he does it. In Matthew chapter 16, Verse 7, this is after the Lord has arisen, but go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter. Be sure you tell Peter, the one who was so mouthy. Be sure to tell Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. He's going to keep his word. And one more scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can take this verse with you. And we find ourselves, much like the disciples, bragging on ourselves and then being horribly disappointed in what we do and horribly disappointed in how weak our faith in Christ is. You take this first verse with you. It's comfort for our weak faith. Second Timothy 2, verse 13. You can bank on God's grace. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. Even though we're not faithful, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. He will give his sheep the grace that Christ bought for them with his precious blood. You can bank on it. All right. God bless you.